know that some of you are probably going to think this is just one of those when I was young stories, but it's true. I started working when I was in elementary school. I, I got summer jobs cutting grass for my neighbors. I'd go around to my neighbor's house and say, hey, I'd love to cut your grass. I'll cut it for this amount. And, and they would give me a job. And so I would cut multiple yards during the summer. But my first actual job where I had an employer was for Coker Farms. And we would go out and we would cut wheat with serrated sickles from early in the morning to early in the evening. It was hard work in the hot sun. But let me tell you, it was worth it. Because every Friday at the end of the week, they would give us our paychecks. The money that we had earned for the work we had done. I was thankful for that paycheck, but I never looked at that paycheck as a gift. I worked hard for my money. If I worked, I got paid. If I didn't work, I didn't get paid. Now, Christmas was different for me because I knew on Christmas morning I was going to get gifts from my mom and dad regardless of how good I had been or how bad I had been. I knew I was going to get gifts on Christmas morning even if I, my grades in school weren't that good. I knew that I was going to get some gifts at Christmas even if I didn't help around the house like I should have helped around the house. The reason is because I didn't get those gifts because I earned them or I deserved them. I got those gifts simply because my mom and my dad loved me. And out of their love for me, they wanted to bestow gifts upon me. Now, can you imagine, for you who work, can you imagine going into work this week and your employer looking at you and smiling at you and, and, and saying with that smile on his face, here, I've got a gift for you. And he's got an envelope, or she's got an envelope in her hands, and you open it up, you're excited, and you see your paycheck. And it's your regular paycheck. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I would be happy that I get a paycheck, but I would be thinking to myself, this isn't a gift. I work for this. In the same way, can you imagine on Christmas morning, someone going to the tree, and there's a gift with their name on it, and they run up to that gift, they grab it, they open it up with eager anticipation, and when they open it up, they look at the gift and they go, I deserve so much more than this. I mean, both of those things would be crazy, wouldn't they? You see, when we work, we expect to get paid. But when someone gives us a gift, regardless of what that gift is, most of us are going to be gracious. We're going to be, we're going to be happy. We're going to be glad. We're going to be thankful that we received those gifts. Now, we're in the book of Romans, and, and several months ago, we looked at the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And in these first three chapters, Paul is making the case that the whole world is guilty before God. None of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve heaven or salvation. He begins by telling us that the wicked people, the irreligious people of the world, they don't deserve heaven. They're guilty. And then he tells us that the moral people of the world, the religious people of the world, they don't deserve heaven. They are guilty. He sums it up by saying that we have all sinned. We all fall short 
God's standard, that none of us measure up, that none of us deserve heaven. But then Paul ends this first section, these first three chapters, by telling us that even though we don't deserve heaven, God will give us heaven if we will place our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God that we can't earn. It's a gift from God that we can't deserve. It's a gift. Now, when we move into chapters 4 and 5, Paul begins to focus on this gift that God has given us. And he uses that word gift seven times in these two chapters. In chapter 6, the next chapter after chapters 4 and 5, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, we have all earned death. Young people, you've earned death. If you get what you deserve from God, you're going to get death. You, you young adults, you deserve death. If you get what you deserve from God, you're going to get death. You senior adults, and you like me who are approaching the senior adult years, we deserve death. If we get what we deserve, we're going to get death. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We can't work for it. But God gives it to us as a gift. And as Paul opens up this section where he's focusing on this gift that God gives us, he gives us an example of someone who received that gift by faith, and the person is Abraham. And so this morning, we want to focus on these first 12 verses in, in Genesis, or excuse, Genesis, in Romans chapter 4. And as we do, we're going to be looking at how we are made righteous, made right with God. Who can be made right with God? How can we know that we are right with God? And, and then why does God make us right with himself in the first place? So let's unpack these 12 verses for just a few moments. First of all, how are we made right with God? Now, if your Bible's open, let's look at verses 1 through 5. Listen to what it says. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If it's his good deeds that made him acceptable to God, he would have something to boast about. But, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift but something they have earned. But people are counted righteous not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Now as we read chapter 4 we discover that Abraham is the central character. He is the main focus of this chapter today. Abraham is held in high esteem by Christians, by Jews, and by Muslims. But Jews and Muslims hold Abraham in high esteem because of what he did. We hold Abraham in high esteem because of his faith. You see, this chapter tells us that Abraham was not made right with God because of what he did. He was made right with God because of his faith. There are only two ways that you and I can be made right with God. The first way is through our works, what we 
do. I try my best. I work hard. I obey God's commands. I treat people right. And I will be right with God. I do the things that God tells me to do. And God pays me by letting me into heaven. And that's what most people in the world believe about heaven. They believe if they live right, they do good, they obey God's commands, then God's going to pay us back for the goodness we've done by letting us into heaven. There are even many Christians who believe this. If I'm good enough, then God's going to let me into heaven. If I go to church enough, if I read my Bible enough, if I give enough money, if I, if I do the right things, then God's going to let me into heaven. But the Bible makes it clear that none of us are ever going to be good enough to get into heaven. One of the books I read this week in, in preparation for today was a book that, that shared a story that was in a newspaper 25 years ago. The newspaper was the Catholic Twin Circle. It's a Catholic newspaper that, that has secular stories, but it's a Catholic newspaper. And in this story, there was an interview that was entitled, A Century with God. It's about a man that had lived to 108 years old and was a faithful Catholic, written in this Catholic newspaper. And here's some of the excerpts from that article. At 108 years of age, Charlie Shabanik was um, of Richmond, California, was, was, uh, may be the oldest Catholic in the United States. But he has a busier prayer life than most Catholics half his age. During the day, he says the rosaries on an ancient set of beads. He likes our lady. He also likes St. David and prays to him. But when asked, who is St. David? He said, gee, I'm darned if I know, but I've been praying to him for years. Charlie's theology is simple and to the point. The Catholic religion is the only religion worth a hill of beans. That's Charlie's words. And he says this, he is trying to get in shape for his final meeting with his creator. He says this, it has taken me 106 years, but I finally stopped using profanities. And I've never been drunk in my life, not once. Then he says something very wise. He says, we are all born under the curse that Adam and Eve brought on us. But then he says something very foolish. So we have to work hard to get to heaven. That's the only purpose of our lives, not fame or fortune. I'm living in hope that when I die, I will go to heaven according to the laws of God. Now, why do I bring up Charlie? The reason I bring up Charlie is not because I'm picking on this 108-year-old guy. It's not because I'm picking on Catholics. The reason I'm bringing up Charlie is because I'm afraid that Charlie is like many of us even in this room today. Regardless whether we're Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist, many of us have this idea that what we do here on this earth is prepping us for our meeting with God and we're trying to do enough good so that when we stand before God, God's going to let us into heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. Charlie said something very wise. He said, we are all born under the curse that Adam and Eve brought on us. And that's true. Charlie got that right. You are born under the curse of Adam. I am born under the curse of Adam. What that means is you are born a sinner. When you're born, 
You already are a sinner. The Bible says, in sin did my mother conceive me. The moment you were born, you were under a curse. The moment you were born, you were infected by sin. And I got to tell you, hear me, you have no hope. <laughs> because there is coming a day when that infection is going to take hold of your life and you are going to act out on that sin that is infecting you. We are born under a curse. Charlie was right there. But the next statement was tragically wrong. He said we have to work hard to get to heaven. Now here's the problem. None of us will ever be able to work hard enough or long enough to earn ourselves into heaven. The Bible says our righteous acts are but filthy rags. The very best that you ever could offer God is but a filthy rag. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul says this, if Abraham's good deeds made him right with God, he would have a reason to boast. But later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul said this, we're not saved by works so no one can boast. I want you to listen very carefully. No one is ever going to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, God, look at all of the good things that I have done. God, look how I have kept your commandments. God, look how I love other people. None of us are going to be able to say that because we all fall short of God's standard. That's why Paul says in this chapter, that's not God's way. The literal translation there is no one is going to be able to brag before God. You're not going to be able to stand before God and brag. That's why God has provided another way for our salvation. Because our works will never get us there. And the other way is faith. Now what you need to understand about faith is it has always been faith that saves. Some of us have this idea that... that we're saved by faith in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, we were saved by keeping the law. But God, God changed his tactics when he came to the New Testament because he realized, man, nobody's really keeping the law like they're supposed to, so I better come up with another way or nobody's going to get in. But that's not the way it is. You see, the Bible teaches us that man has always been saved by faith from the very beginning. You see, the law could never make us right with God. The law can only point out our guilt before God. When you read the law, when you read God's standards, it shouldn't make you bow up your chest and say, look at me, look how righteous I am, look how good I am. It should cause you to fall on your face before God and think, look how bad I am. Look how far I fall short of what God wants me to do. And some of you are saying, well, Rocky, I'm not that bad. I've never killed anyone. Well, have you ever called anybody a bad name? Have you ever had bad thoughts about someone? I mean, Jesus said, if you have, you're in danger of the hell fire. You say, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never had sex before marriage. Well, maybe you haven't. Have you ever lusted? Jesus said, if you lusted, you're already guilty of breaking the law. I mean, every one of us are guilty. We're guilty from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. And Paul made that clear in these first three chapters. There are none of us who are righteous. That's why God provided another way from the very beginning. 
In verse 3, it says this. Abraham believed God, and God counted him righteous because of his faith. That's a quote from Genesis 15, 6. Do you remember the story of Abraham? Abraham was a pagan. He was living in a pagan land with a pagan family, worshiping pagan gods when God revealed himself to him. And God called him to leave that pagan land and go to a land that he didn't even know where he was going. But he trusted God and he obeyed God. God gave Abraham a promise that he was going to have a lot of children and, and he was going to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. And that was a reference to Jesus. And even though Abraham had no children at this time, he trusted God. He had faith. Years passed. And now Abraham is an old man. He is beyond the age of having kids. He can't do it anymore. His wife can't do it anymore. But God appears to him again and says, Abraham, I'm still going to keep my promise to you. Abraham, I'm still going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. And that's where we read this passage. Abraham believed God. God counted it as righteousness because of his faith. What God told Abraham was impossible. Abraham could not have kids on his own. But he believed God, and God counted it as righteous. That word counted or credited is the most important word in this chapter. It's used multiple times. It's a banking term. It means to deposit into your account. It's like this. You go to the bank and, and you deposit $100 into your account. That's a credit. If you write a check for $25 against your account, that's a debit. It's taken out of your account. The Bible says that God has credited our account with righteousness because of our faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says it this way. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. Let me, let me show you what that's saying. It's saying that God took the sinless Christ. And on the sinless Christ, he poured all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our faults onto him. He put them into his account. And then he took all of Christ's righteousness, all of his goodness, and he took that off of Christ, out of his account, and he put it into our account. Think of it this way. Think in heaven that God has this, this page for each and every one of us. And on one side of the page is the good things that we've done. On the other side of the page is the bad things that we've done. And let's just say that God has this ledger for each and every one of us in heaven. And see, most people in the world, what they do is they sit back and they're hoping, they're hoping, they're hoping that one day when they stand before God, the good things in the ledger are going to outweigh the bad things in the ledger. I've got more good things than I do bad things. And so we work hard to build up our good things. I mean, we don't cuss, we don't um, have lustful thoughts, we... We don't say bad things about our neighbors. We don't kick the dog. We don't do anything like that. And, and I mean, the good things are kind of building up in our, in our column here. But then all of a sudden, something goes wrong. I mean, it could be our spouse says something. It could be the neighbor does something. But something goes wrong, and all of a sudden, the words come out. Added to the bad column. 
and all of a sudden we want to get even with our neighbor, so we let the dog out in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> the bad column. And we keep on adding to the bad column. And here's the deal. No matter how much good we do, we're going to always have more in the bad column. That's just the way it's going to be. But the Bible says that God came and he took all of the things in our bad column and he put them upon Jesus. And then he took all of Jesus' good and he put it into our column. So that when God looks at us, God doesn't see any bad. All he sees is the good, the righteousness that God has put into our account. He's credited into our account. That's what that word means. When we believe in God, when we place our faith in God, God credits our account righteousness. He makes us right with God. You see, we're not going to go to heaven because we've earned a place there. We're not going to go to heaven because our good outweighs our bad. The truth of the matter is, listen, this is so stinking important. If you sit back and think, well, you know, I'm still trying to make my good outweigh my bad. If you're doing that, you're nullifying your faith. You're nullifying your faith. You see, it's all or nothing when it comes to faith. You can't say, I'm going to trust in Jesus, but I'm going to still try to make sure my good outweighs my bad. Well, it's not. And so you're making your faith useless. You've got to come to that point in your life where you realize that salvation is not something you earn by what you do. Salvation is simply a gift that you receive by faith. So what about it with you? Have you come to that point in your life where you realize that the very best you have to offer is not good enough? That your only hope is to receive a gift from God that is eternal life. And the only way you can receive that is through trusting in Him. Oh, dear friend, listen to me. I remember vividly, and you've heard this multiple times, but I remember vividly when I placed my faith in Jesus. It was a marker in my life that changed everything. You say, Rocky, a, a belief in your head changed everything? No. A faith in my heart changed everything. It changed me. It marked me. It made me a new person. And I'm here to tell you, when you come to that point where you quit trying to please God by what you do, and you realize that God loves you the way you are, and he simply wants you to trust him with your life, it will change everything. How are we saved? We're saved by faith. So who can be saved? Here's the problem. When we use Abraham as an example of faith, I mean, Abraham was the father of everybody who has faith. I mean, he was the big dog. I mean, here was this guy who left his homeland and went to a land that he did not know. That took faith. Here was a man who was told when he was 100 years old, you're going to have a kid, and he believed God. That took faith. Here was a man who, when that child was born and became a, a, young, a, a young boy, God said, I want you to go and take him and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham did it. He went and was ready to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, believing that God would bring his son back to life. That took faith. i got to be honest with you. I don't know if I have faith in any of those levels. I, I mean, faith to leave what's convenient, faith to leave what I know, and travel somewhere I don't know because God tells me to, that takes faith. 
faith to believe that God can do something that is humanly impossible in my life just because he tells me, man, that's faith. And faith to offer up my son as a sacrifice, believing that God will bring him back to life, that's faith. I got I to be honest. I don't, I, I don't have, I've got faith, but I don't have that kind of faith. Do, do any of you, if, do any of y'all have that kind of faith? And, and so, and so when I, I look at this story, I think, well, that's well and good. Abraham, he was, he was the big dog. I mean, he was the example for the world. I mean, who, who could have faith like that? It's one thing for Abraham to be saved by faith. What about me? What about you? I mean, those of us who, and we'd love to have that kind of faith, but our faith just isn't, it's not that big. Do we have any hope? And that's where Paul kind of pivots. And he tells us about another guy. This guy's David. Remember David? Most of us, when we think about David, we think about a man after God's own heart. And David was King David. I mean, he was this good, great guy. We think, you know, David just lived his life to please God, and then he lived the rest of his life just writing praise songs, you know, the, the Psalms. And that's what we think about David. But, but the truth of the matter is David was a flawed guy. The reality is, if, if we were voting on a pastor, probably none of us, if we knew David's background, would vote for him as a pastor. He was a flawed guy. I mean, he, he was up on his roof one, one morning when, when the kings were off to battle. He should have been fighting, and he was being lazy, and he was up on the roof, and he saw this naked woman, and he began to lust after her. He brought her to his house. He committed adultery with her. It was one of his best friend's wives. He got pregnant. He couldn't hide it any longer. He had one of his best friends killed. Here's David. He's an adulterer, murderer. He's a bad guy. Can he be forgiven? Can, can he experience grace? Can he have faith? Well, listen to what it says in verses 6 to 8. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous. That word declared, by the way, is that same word counted, credited. This is the third time it's used here. Who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. That word cleared, again, that's that word credited, counted, counted. This is the fourth time this word is used in just several verses. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's going back to Psalm 32, this psalm that David wrote when he had confessed his sin before God. And notice what he said, how happy are those who are declared righteous, not who earn righteousness, not who work for forgiveness, but those who are declared righteous, those who receive forgiveness. And, and then Paul uses three words, or David uses three words to describe the forgiveness that we can have simply by faith uses the word forgiven. That word means to send away. Remember where it says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sins are removed from us. That's what God does. When we seek 
forgiveness by faith. He takes our sins and he moves them away to the point that they are infinitely far away from us. We can never see them again. And then it says he puts them out of sight. That means that they are covered up, they are buried. And you know what they are covered with? They are covered with the blood of Jesus. And then it says that, they, uh, that he has cleared our record. That same word that is used in verses 3 and 5. God doesn't count our sins against us. You see, what Paul is saying here is it doesn't matter what you have done, God will forgive you. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen, God will make you right with him if you trust him, if you place your faith in him. You can't be made right with God by living up to a standard, but you can be made right with God simply by faith. How are we made right with God? By faith. Who can be made right with God? Anybody and everybody, regardless of what you've done. So how do we know we've been made right with God? Well, listen to what it says in verses 9 through 11. Now, is, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is, is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith, but, but how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. Now, our problem in understanding these verses is the fact that circumcision means something different to us than it meant to the first century Jew. For us, circumcision is a medical procedure. But for the first century Jew, circumcision was a sacred ceremony that marked a male as a part of the Jewish community. Here's what William Barclay said. He said, to a Jew, a man who was not circumcised was quite literally not a Jew, no matter what his parentage was. Circumcision is what made them a Jew. You see, the Jews believe that you became a Jew, you became a child of God, you became a follower of the one true God by being circumcised. But Paul is telling them that no, circumcision was simply a sign and a seal of our faith. It's not circumcision that makes you right with God. It's circumcision that has set you apart and shown everyone that you are a true child of God. Paul says two things here about circumcision. He says it's a sign. A sign is something that points to a reality. A sign in itself is real, but it's not pointing to the reality. It's pointing to what is real, what is important. For instance, this wedding ring on my, my left hand, this wedding ring is a sign that points to a reality. It's a sign that points to a fact that 36 years ago, my wife and I made a commitment to one another. All this wedding ring is is a sign. If I take it off, I could take it off and never wear it again. And it's not changing the fact that I made a commitment to her and she made a commitment to me 36 years ago. But this wedding ring is a sign that reminds me that I have made that commitment. You see, for a Jewish male, and you may think this is going too far, but for a Jewish male, circumcision was this permanent sign 
Every time they got undressed, every time they went to the bathroom, they were reminded, I am a special person chosen by God. They were reminded constantly that they had a special relationship with God. It didn't matter where they went in the world. It didn't matter how far they traveled from Jerusalem. It didn't matter how far they fell from following the commandments of God. Every time they looked at their body, they were reminded, God has chosen me. I'm special. I belong to him. You see, circumcision was a sign that reminded them of a relationship but it was also a seal circumcision was a permanent sign you can't be uncircumcised once you're circumcised you're circumcised it's a permanent seal and so they were reminded each and every time they looked at their body that I am a child of God and nothing can change this now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we also have a sign. And it's not circumcision. The Bible says the sign that we have is baptism. Baptism is a sign and a seal of our faith in Jesus throughout the New Testament. We see everyone who was saved was baptized. You say, Rocky, I don't believe that. Read the New Testament. Every time you see someone place their faith in Jesus, they were baptized. Acts 2, 3,000, gladly baptized because they placed their faith in Jesus. Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, baptized because he placed his faith in Jesus. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer and his family, baptized because they placed their faith in Jesus. Acts 19, the, um, the Ephesian believers, baptized because they placed their faith in Jesus. Over and over and over again we see it. Baptism didn't save them. Baptism was simply a sign that they had placed their faith in Jesus. But it was a sign that was a permanent marker. You see, this is why we say you don't need to be baptized but once. You don't get baptized every time you make a recommitment to Jesus. Goodness gracious, I would have been baptized 25,000 times. I mean, because I blow it a lot. And if I had to get rebaptized every time I blow it and I recommit my life to Jesus, man, I'd be waterlogged. And I've got news for you. So would you. But baptism isn't that way. Baptism is a permanent seal. Once we're baptized as followers of Jesus, we don't need to do it over and over and over again. We do need to do it that one time. But it's that marker that points to that time when I gave my life to Jesus. For me... I remember two things vividly in my early life. I remember a few more, but two things that I remember vividly is sitting in the back um, row of the church that I was at and um, the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin and me coming forward and giving my life to Jesus. I remember that vividly. And I remember vividly my dad baptizing me as that sign, that seal, that marker that shored up my faith. So how do we know that we're saved? Well, baptism doesn't save any more than circumcision saved. A person could be circumcised and not be a part of the true family of faith. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism does show that you are seeking to walk in obedience. And how do we know we're saved? We know we're saved by the way we walk. 
uh, walking in obedience. Here's the final thing I want you to see. What does um, God make us righteous for? Look at verses 11 and 12. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised. But only if they have the same kind of faith as Abraham um, before he was circumcised. Now I want to take a little bit of license here. And let me just tell you up front for you Bible scholars. I'm taking a little bit of license. Okay. So don't come to me and say Rocky you're taking that passage a little bit to an extreme there. I know that I am. Okay. But I think it's important here. I, I want you to circle that phrase spiritual father. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith. What that is saying is Abraham was the first of many who had faith. Many from the Jewish line and many from the Gentile line. There are many who have faith like Abraham because of Abraham's faith. Now what I want to ask you is this. Who are you the spiritual father of? Who are you the spiritual mother of? Who has faith because of your faith? Who is a part of the family of God because of your witness, because of your testimony? Who's your one? And we talked about who's your one back in the, the spring. And we asked all of us to to figure out who's that one, who's that two, who are those multiple people that we're going to pray for daily and ask God to give us opportunities to share our faith with. Who's your one? I mean, God saves you not only so that you can enjoy a relationship with him. God saves you so that you can bring other people into his family. He wants you to have spiritual offspring. He wants you to bring people into the family of faith. So, so are you a spiritual father? Are you a spiritual mother of people? Because I believe God leaves us here so that we can bring other people with us into the family. All of us know Billy Graham. Someone asked Billy Graham right before he died, why do you think God will let you into heaven? This was the very last interview that he gave. And Billy Graham said this. He said, I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Why are you going to be in heaven? Not because I've preached to great crowds. Billy Graham has probably preached to more people than than any other person who has ever walked the face of the earth. Not because he tried to live a good life. Billy Graham, I think even, even pagans would say Billy Graham was a good man. He was an honorable man, a decent man. Billy Graham said, none of those things are going to get me to heaven. The only reason I'm going to heaven is because many years ago, I placed my faith in Jesus who died on a cross and rose from graves, so I could be forgiven. And what's true of Billy Graham is true for me and is true for you. None of us are going to earn a place in heaven. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you cannot earn your place in heaven. And none of us are so bad that we can't go to heaven. Because God's forgiveness and God's 
mercy and God's grace can be poured out on anyone and everyone. But here's the deal. We don't get to heaven by what we do. We get to heaven by what Jesus has already done. And we have to place our faith in Jesus. We have to receive the gift of eternal life by faith. And if you're here and you've never humbled yourself admitting to God, God, I am a sinner. I'm never going to be good enough. I need you. Then I'm begging you today. Humble yourself. Trust Jesus to save you. And if you do, He'll change your life. He'll make everything brand new. That's what he promises to do. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, then I want to encourage you this morning to humble yourself right now and pray this prayer to him. Dear God, I come to you this morning Admit I am a sinner. I've failed you. I've disobeyed you. Sorry. Lord, today, I'm trusting you to save me. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave so that I could be forgiven. I'm asking you to come into my life and take control. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen.